When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Curtis Yarvin, who at one point in time was writing under the pseudonym Mencius Molbug. In this conversation, we talk about his idea of monarchism and what he thinks of as the real replacement for the failures of our government in its current state. There are several interviews out there that you can find that go into his theories in more detail. I was trying to pull out different angles on his ideas so we don't go into those ideas as deeply as he does in other podcasts and interviews. But if you want to learn more, he's got a blog or a substack right now called graymirror.substack.com. And there's a few articles there that are free that outline very explicitly and entertainingly, he's a very entertaining man, his ideas on government and how things could be going forward. So without further ado, here is Curtis Yarvin. Um... One thing that you said during one, I can't remember which one, you said that you would, uh, you should write a science fiction novel, but you, you don't want to write fiction. You don't think that you're a good. I'm not, writer. I'm not, I'm not a good fiction writer. Yeah. But I, I was thinking, uh, in, like in the style of Phaedrus or Emil or like some sort of dialogue where you're talking mm. to, uh, you're talking to the student, you know, cause I, I cause, yeah, cause there's, you, I mean, sure. Go on, go on. Well, you talk about, uh, like one of your big ideas is this, this monarch, but I don't, I don't yeah. get a sense of who that monarch would be. Like what would his character be? Like you, you talk about the system, but I wonder like if you get a bad guy in the system, how do you know, like from your perspective, like what virtues this, uh, this, this uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think people try to sort of, um, there's a lot of um, fear there and people try to sort of overplay people sort of overplay the problem, which is like somewhat banal in my view. I mean, you know, one way to think about it is um, if you look at the fortune 500 companies, right, there's 500 of them because that's why it's the fortune 500. Um, And, you know, the smallest of them has certainly thousands of employees. Um, And so you've got, um, sort of 500 men and women um, from that world who are experienced in holding that kind of responsibility. And if you look at their sets of like virtues and vices, uh, they're probably mostly pretty similar. And, you know, some of the ways I sort of regard people's kind of fear of monarchy is they sort of, imagine you're picking the CEO of Chipotle, right? And you're like, first priority is he's not going to run, <coughs> come up and with an evil scheme to like poison the burritos because clearly he's the CEO. So he could order poison, put in the burritos, could be a slow acting poison, something. Right. And, and it's like the, the, 
executive search team when they pick the Chipotle CEO does not really worry about we got to find someone who's not going to poison the burritos. And so like, you know, your bar is just a good bit higher than that. And so, you know, I don't know who the CEO of Chipotle is. He's probably fine. He's probably, I mean, I guess, you know, the thing is that there are one of the ways people talk about the job in Silicon Valley is to describe the two kinds of CEOs, sort of people will say wartime CEOs and peacetime CEOs. That doesn't mean these companies are actually making war. It just means that a peacetime CEO is a CEO who's basically has something that's executing on a smooth keel and kind of needs to keep it forward and moving forward and executing sort of smoothly. So if you look like in terms of Apple, say Steve Jobs is is a wartime CEO and Tim Cook is more of a peacetime CEO, right? Which is not to say that he's not making tough decisions or tough choices every day, but he's not really you know, someone that you would want in there if their mission was to like entirely change what Apple is. And so to a certain extent, when you're establishing any kind of a new regime, that's a kind of wartime situation. And so you need someone that's very, very dynamic, that's willing to like rip up a lot of pieces of paper and like a no or a naysayer like somebody yeah like or yeah i mean but even even you know uh would you call even musk elon musk uh, you know a naysayer uh you know elon musk is someone with a lot of initiative who basically can make things happen and you know the role of a peacetime ceo is sort of more to like preside over something that's working smoothly which is why if you put someone like that in a position where large changes need to be made, you don't really have the right person. Um, But, you know, the thing is that it's just not like we sort of accompany the job with this like mystical air in some ways. And it's actually, it's a, you know, governing is or should be a pretty banal thing it's like it's gotten sort of a lot of like you know very big romantic ideas associated with it in well, there's the a lot of power there so. years. there's a lot of power there but the but the thing is that you know when when you when you have mechanisms for putting someone in that power that basically sort of depend on like a kind of certain, like if the sort of the main problem with a lot of the, a lot of 20th century governance has a very high crazy level. And when you look at basically the very high crazy level of 20th century governance, you basically see that there are crazy incentives driving the way that people both get to make these decisions and crazy incentives driving them when they're making these decisions. And normally it's best to see like, the people who wind up in those slots as kind of 
their craziness is in general constructed by those processes or those, you know, sort of like their the hands climate. are sort of tied. Yeah, the climate or the structure, their hands are sort of tied in terms of how sane they can be. And I think that people think of like sort of like people have been exposed to so many romantic ideas of governance that they don't <clears throat> really even have an idea of what sanity is. I mean, what is sanity, for example, for the CEO, for an organization like Tesla, for an organization like Ford? Um, there's a whole bunch of constraints that sort of immediately tie you <clears throat> to a vision of the sane. You know, Tesla is not going to go out um, and invade the island of Haiti and like, you know, re-enslave the Haitians and set them to making sugarcane. It's just not. That is not going to happen. That is not within the realm of like sane things that Tesla could do. Tesla is not going to say, tomorrow we're going to take over the dental floss business. We're going to become the kings of dental floss. Like they're not going to do this. And and so when you're in sort of like a system and a structure that defines what sanity is, whether you're Elon Musk or Elizabeth the first or Louis the 14th, um, you have like, it sort of, it, it feels like this much less sort of open-ended kind of crazy problem of like, Oh, we're going to go crazy and in, invade the moon or like, you know, and, and there's, there's like, there's a lot of things that Washington does every day that are as crazy as invading the moon. And when you look at the way those crazy things happen, it's not because of one or two crazy people, actually, generally the people involved in these things are like very sensible and very good and very, um, you know, practical good, down to earth. Yeah, practical down to earth people. Players, they're just yeah. team players. You know, they're just basically in a system that makes them make you know crazy decisions. I mean, for me, the COVID thing, because I'm a you know believer in the in the lab leak theory of COVID, is such a perfect sort of case of like we're going to have these crazy incentives that basically leave us doing this extremely dangerous gain of function research in this very, very risky and unsafe way. And the, um, um, is it um, because there's, uh, the government, uh, has taken on too much problems. Like with a company like Tesla, they have a very specific mandate and with the government, it's so open-ended. Is that where the craziness or the stochastic chaos is coming? That's giving yeah, rise to these crazy I mean, ideas and behaviors. The, the, um, like, I mean, you know, even the question of what the mission of government is, which seemed very obvious and very straightforward, say the, the Elizabethans has taken on all this sort of chiliastic and messianic kind of, you know, overtones. Um, I mean, even when you look at, for example, when you dive into, say, a question like foreign policy, it's sort of dubious as to whether there's sort of ever been any clear sanity guiding U.S. foreign policy. I mean, if you go and look, for example, at Washington's farewell address, um, which you do you know the farewell address. Um, can you can you quote uh, it? 
like you do I with can, the uh, FDRs? I, <laughs> I could, but I'll, I'll just I'll just summarize it. Uh, you know, his his farewell address is sort of he's like reminding Americans that their foreign policy should be conducted in the you know the interests of America and et cetera. He's expressing it's it's one of the expressions of kind of what is sometimes called isolationist foreign policy, and he's basically sort of painting this picture, very 18th century picture of a kind of wise approach to foreign policy. And, you know, this is all very well, but you sort of read it and you're like, why did he have to say this? And the reason he had to say this and warn against basically sort of um, being pulled into the quarrels of others and is that already basically many Americans, including the Americans who didn't really disagree, didn't really agree with George Washington too much, were very, very eager to basically see the United States become the kind of world home base of revolutionary politics. And so right away you had this, you know, we've always been dreamers then. Or at least the earth. You the had this incredibly wacky event with this guy, Citizen Genet, who is the, the French revolutionary ambassador to the US and basically um, made him made such a noose made himself such a nuisance that he actually got kicked out, was but was basically sort of proceeding on this plan. And the level of like support for the French Revolution even it's sort of at its most sanguinary days was, you know, you'll have all these lines from Jefferson where he's like the tree of, you know, the tree of Liberty must be refreshed with the blood of tyrants or like shit like that, you know, where, where he's basically like, you know, he's like, ah, you, you know, he, he reacts to this insane shit in France where he's been right. But eh, you got to kill a few people every once in a while. Right. You know, it's kind of creepy. Right. You know, and, and distinctly reminiscent of, American sympathy for Stalin or for, you know, the Russian Revolution. I mean, in 1848, there's this, um, of course, outright, you know, sort of outbreak of uh, almost what we would now call color revolutions across Europe. And um, this one character in Hungary, this guy Kasuth, becomes the liberal leader of Hungary, um, is then chased out by, um, you know, the Rus- Russian troops help the Habsburgs uh, reinstall themselves. Kasuth gets chased out and he becomes this massive public celebrity, first in London and then in America, where basically people are doing exactly the same thing with sort of the Hungarians in 1848 that they're doing, say, with the Ukrainians now. They're basically found, you know, they're sort of doing exactly what Washington was telling them not to do. They basically found this sort of foreign quarrel, developed an emotional interest in and picked a side and like, you know, gone bananas over it. Do you think that that has something to do with our culture then that we, we like to kind of embosom the world or we find a conflict that doesn't necessarily have to do with us and we just identify with that, that something about our meaning making? Yeah, it's like a sick gladiatorial, you know, reflex. It's like if you remember the Arab Spring, right, you were probably excited about the Arab Spring. That was the bipartisan, you know, excitement. Everyone was excited about the Arab Spring. And it was um, cool. The Internet was of, doing making waves, you know, Twitter. Yeah, and Facebook I know, were, I know, I know, I know, I know. And and this is like, yeah, Twitter and Facebook were and you remember like Google guy in Egypt. Right. You know, and that movement wound up killing about 500,000 to a million people. It did not cause a civil war 
in Egypt, which it almost did, which certainly would have killed a few more million people. Um, it devastated Syria and Libya. Um, and it was like, it was sort of funny watching, you know, sort of the American democratic governance machine in a situation where public opinion and the deep state are really sort of completely aligned. And we feel that we're doing this very clearly unambiguously good thing. Um, and then it just results in just like horror and disaster as usual. And the, the response of people, there's sort of one test I use for like sanity in that situation, which is kind of a good Samaritan test. And if you're really acting as a, as a good Samaritan in this case, let's say you um, you're walking down the street and you see a horrific motorcycle accident and you're the first one on the scene. You run over to the guy. He's lying there in his motorcycle helmet. You like take his helmet off um, don't do that. You've made a mistake. Um, do not move the helmet of someone who's had a motorcycle accident because it turns out that you just broke his neck and, uh, or he broke his neck, but you broke his spinal cord and paralyzed him for life. Let the MTs handle that one. Right. But you didn't, right. You were trying to be nice. You were trying to help, but you basically just inflicted this horrendous life-changing thing on these people. Right. And so if you're basically doing that with the sort of the true spirit of charity and altruism, you're going to be pretty beaten up about that. You're going to think hard about, wow, I was trying to help, but in instead I inflicted this crazy level of damage and you would definitely never do something like that again. And, but we don't our, as a country, we we're, we're but with the Arab forgetting. spring, it was like, Oh, this didn't work out. It's too bad. Let's change the channel. Right. You know? And so there's this sense of like, sort of deranged and irresponsible like power in a sense running free you know it's like when you compare say libya um or the libyan revolutionaries in 2012 or whenever it was to sort of foreign policy of the past the thing that it instantly reminds you of is say the spanish-american war or say the reunification of Italy by Garibaldi. Uh, Garibaldi certainly reunified Italy with his like 300 red shirts or whatever, but um, uh, that was, or he conquered the kingdom of the two Sicilies with his 300 red shirts, which was possible only because he had the British Navy right offshore declaring basically a no sail zone or <laughs> whatever the equivalent was at the time, right? So it was this sort of act of... Um, kind of somewhat naked imperialism and the result was a new unified Italy which was to some extent a British client state which offered a lot of new commercial opportunities to British merchants you look at the Spanish-American war it has all of these like you know all this liberal rhetoric about how you know in the yellow press about how you know the evil spanish generals are abusing you know fetching cumid maidens and so forth they really laid it on extremely thick mm -hmm. and and like just like at a level of like blatancy that's just utterly comical today um but on the other hand um 
so it was sort of this kind of high point of like liberal imperialism or like an attack on a foreign power that was basically justified by sort of liberal thinking. On the other hand, this liberal thinking resulted in basically the acquisition of Cuba, the Philippines and Puerto Rico. Um, Mm-hmm. say what you want about Puerto Rico, but these are valuable properties, basically. Mm-hmm. And were treated as valuable properties and returned much to like American colonialist investors and the United Fruit Company and so on and so forth. And so you basically look at that sort of liberal imperialism and you're like, okay, there's something predatory here, clearly. Um, you know, from the perspective of Spain, there's something very predatory going on here. On the other hand, like what the U.S. in 1898 killed, it ate. And so it was like a dog, like there's something ugly about it and there's something beautiful about it. It's like a wolf hunting a deer, you know, like, Hmm. you know, this is only going to end one way. You know, the wolf is going to take down the deer and then the wolf is going to eat. Right. And the thing is, when you look at sort of the liberal imperialism of today, it's like, it's like a dog killing sheep. Like there's an instinct to like take out Gaddafi. There's an instinct to take out Assad. It feels great to have wheel out Obama and put something on his teleprompter where he's like Assad must go, Mubarak must go, Gaddafi must go. Um, People understate the sort of power of American soft power to the point where if you wheeled Obama out and had him say like Merkel must go, you could probably start a civil war in Germany that way. Um, but hmm. you just know, by, just the, by him saying that, just just, just by, by like him, the moral just, authority, just by of, just by basically saying we remove the moral authority from this regime that we have established. And if you basically, yeah, I mean, you could, you know, amazing things are possible with that shit. Um, but. Um, the... And this, this this liberal rhetoric or this this liberal facade of generosity of caring is always hiding some sort of power play, or you can't well, separate those two. Would it be yeah, better to just it's, have it's naked like, it's power? It's like can't it can't. It's an interesting question. It's like it's hiding. It's not really an absence of sincerity. It's that it's sort of. It's a thing that the sincerity kind of doesn't know itself. And so people think that they're genuinely sincere, that what they're sort of doing is caring. But what's actually sort of driving them and driving the structures there is something where when the effects of the caring are extremely bad and counterproductive. There's no caring about that. So in a way it's like, it's Mm. something that really wants to think of itself as kind of a duty of care, but you can also read it as this like perverse gladiatorial fascination. And, you know, this thing of like, we're using Ukraine to weaken Putin and we're going to like fight to the last Ukrainian. I mean, it's like, (laughs) if you think you're doing a good thing for Ukraine, excuse me, the Ukraine here, if you think you're doing a good thing for the Ukraine, you're already several hundred yards behind the goal line here. Like many bad things have already happened to Ukraine, the Ukraine as a result of this policy of arming it to like basically as an anti-Russian power. 
So you might say we're going to get the 300 yards back and we're going to get back to our own 20, but you've got game. You're, you're not even in the stadium right now in terms of the damage you've inflicted on this country. And um, you would say, well, the Ukrainians are into it. Well, yeah, I mean, like the Jedi mind powers of like the American cosmopolitan ruling class are extremely great. And if we went past sort of our current enthusiasms into like some kind of full on Jim Jones suicide cult, um, I feel like a lot of the chic people in Warsaw and Kiev and Lvov would be committing suicide as well. Hmm. Um, I think that's sort of how powerful that kind of fashion dominance is in a way. And so, and that was certainly the case with the kind of, tiny fringes of sort of liberal elite who were very into the Arab Spring. Also, it's like, wow, civil society in Libya or civil civil society in Egypt is going to get a huge boost. Um, and they didn't, but you could see where they were sort of coming from mm-hmm. with that. And you so... Know, that we Just like uh, with, uh, I don't know, I don't want to get into European um, history or something, but I'm I'm just thinking we inflict that on ourselves through uh, wokeness or DEI training. It seems like with the Black Lives Matter event, like the liberal cosmopolitan elite was all on board with defunding the police. We're going to liberate these these areas of our own country. And now those areas are completely decimated by all all of that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it wasn't. Rhetoric doesn't actually translate into helping. It wasn't really, I mean, it wasn't the the first time. I mean, if you look at basically 60 years ago, every major American city had like a thriving black business district. It had a thriving black upper-class residential district, Um, you know, and those areas are generally burned out now. And that was basically something that happened in the late 60s and early 70s. And, you know, the connection between that and the civil rights movement, which um, Americans saw on their TVs and supported with great enthusiasm, seems to be sort of rather direct in a way. Um, And so you're basically, again, looking at something where if you're like, wow, let's say I'm like flying a drone over urban African American areas in like 1962 and 2022. What I'm going to observe with my eyes is that these areas have been like decimated. And so I would basically assume that um, sometime in the sixties, some kind of radical anti-black party had come to power. Maybe the Ku Klux Klan had won the election in 68 And that would explain why these areas had been systematically destroyed. Right. And that's not indeed what happened. You know, what happened was actually the opposite of that. What happened was that basically a set, an aspect of America that hadn't gotten a whole lot of attention or sympathy or this or, you know, empathy, you might say, uh, received that. And the result of this emotion was seem to be, you know, just to a physical observer of the people and the places seems to be a great deal of destruction. And the mentality of like, our intentions are good, our hearts are pure. And so we don't really have to think about 
the destruction that we're causing or the destruction that results here is not the way that people whose hearts are pure think. And well, so, there's, there's, at no point uh, under any of these examples do the people who are taking off the bike helmet actually have to deal with the severed spine or, or recognize yeah. that they're at fault for doing that. It doesn't seem yes, like they're yes. capable or the system itself or the liberal they're, they're, uh, I guess, culture just can't see that. They're, they're, they're motivated by like there's something that is very similar to empathy and sort of easily – masquerades as it but like drives out the real thing it's like a kind of gresham's law where bad money drives out good bad empathy drives out good empathy um and so you know one of the ways to think about well you know you're like what is this bad empathy what is this thing that is like empathy but is not empathy and um it reminds me of this etymological fact that I love that I always quote, which is the etymology of the word Lord. Um, Lord is an old Anglo-Saxon word, and it comes from chlaf word, which means the chlaf is um, loaf, as in bread. And the ward is, ward as in guard, as in basically, so your lord is basically he who guards your bread, he who gives you this day your daily bread. And um, hmm. if you're feeding someone, you basically are his lord, because even if you don't care to tell him what to do, you could. And you could say, if you don't do this, I'm not going to feed you. And so the sort of, you know, basically the sense that you have of like caring for others is like closely entwined with the sense of being Lord over them. And, you know, certainly as a parent, like you feel that very closely, like the, the, the sort of the care and the dependency are all very much tied together. And so in a way, when people adopt these sort of, you know, the mindset that supports these kinds of foreign policies, they sort of acquiring or domestic policies, they're sort of acquiring clients in a way they're sort of feeling themselves become more powerful because they're feeling themselves owning others by caring for others. You know, it's, it's, that, it's actually, it's represented on Twitter. The people who put Ukraine flags in their bio are kind of claiming Ukraine as their own in yeah, a way. They're claiming Ukraine as absolutely. They're claiming Ukraine as their, as their possession and they as don't really understand. Yeah. yeah. As their vassal state. Right. You know, and they sort of don't understand like, because they've sort of only been exposed to imperialism as a caricature, they don't really understand how close this is to the way that actual imperialists thought. Yeah. And so, yeah. White man's burden kind of classic. Yeah, hip-hop. yeah, yeah. White man's burden, right? And so basically, you know, they're they're taking up the, um, you know, the, the, the white man's burden when they put the Ukraine flag in their... Um, in their thing. I mean, you know, of course, it raises the question of whether Slavs are white, but, um, you know, we, we don't have to go into that. You can do the etymology uh, <laughs> of slave if you want to. Hey, there you go. There you go. Right, 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 right. And now it's like they wear these track suits. They have this like squat, you know, the, um, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you know that like some of the rhetoric, uh, you know, the sort of Ukrainian Russian rhetoric is absolutely 
deranged and the word more deranged than our our blue red rhetoric (laughs) yes because the slur that ukrainians have picked up on that they um use for russian is orcs literally orcs they stole it from tolkien right and so they basically think of them as like subhuman creatures from the east and and one of the things that triggered the original revolt in the donbass in 2014 was basically as soon as the kind of western ukrainians got control of the ukrainian state they started passing all of these like anti-russian laws like you have to like not speak russian and like change your name to like the funny looking ukrainian spelling and you'll see pictures on Yes. So they, they, they did a cultural genocide or, or washing. Yeah, that's of, a strong not genocide, term, but, but I mean, it's, it's basically, yeah, it's the sort of thing that basically you do to a cultural, you know, minority that you yeah. basically want to kind of, you know, bring into line. You know, you could compare it if you were feeling generous to like the way that like Northern France treated Southern France like 500, 600 years ago. Right. Okay. You know, and 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 it's like the. um and and so you'll see pictures one of the old folk punishments or whatever which gets used a lot um in ukraine is tying people to trees and so i don't know if you go around you'll see in twitter people tied to trees or telephone poles and sometimes their faces have been painted green to show that they're orcs um this would be like i don't think that like speaking russian is not going to do that but like basically you're being accused of being a russian sympathizer so it's just this like you know you go into like the inside of this war and there's just like insane shit everywhere right you know and Mm -hmm. and needless to say the people with ukrainian flags in their in their twitter handles would probably never tie anyone to a tree and paint their face green for speaking the wrong language but like that that was probably not really in their like bag of tricks like at all really but like that's sort of what they're when they basically sort of picked sides in this like nationalistic balkan basically fight i'm sure all uh, all ukrainians would be insulted by my use of the word balkan but you know the the like you know you're just doing this like there's this level at what at where what you're doing is this kind of gladiatorial spectator thing and like to like sort of step sort of all the way back right it's like when you know you look at the foreign policy that's driven this where you know there were these constant promises made to like not expand nato and then it's like oop sorry it looks like we're expanding nato right you know and the like the sense of a driving force behind this kind of foreign policy, which is not in any way the force of reason is like, you're just like, it's sort of, it's just like power is flowing into wherever it wants to go. And it's sort of reminiscent. There's a lot of this kind of foreign policy that's like very reminiscent of the frog and the scorpion, right? Where basically it's just sort of the nature of this whole system, which includes both the bureaucrats who run it and the sort of Mm -hmm. supporters of it who basically like, have these incentives to basically cause trouble and create problems and they don't see it that way that is not their framework they're basically trying to like 
create freedom, but their sense of freedom is basically they see one stone on top of another and they're like, we must liberate the stone on the bottom. And so, you know, sort of freedom is kind of becomes indistinguishable from a kind of like destruction. And so you look at basically Mm -hmm. the like things that like when you compare, for example, Afghanistan to Vietnam, you know, basically, first of all, Afghanistan is run by people whose like formative experience was the lessons learned from Vietnam. And just in terms of like age cohort, they didn't seem to learn any lesson at all. And like Vietnam, Afghanistan makes Vietnam look sane. And like it made Vietnam look sane. It was just like all well, of the we're same. never going to get the you know full metal jacket movies. It's never going to be romanticized or um, yeah, yeah. And and there's no like you know it's like when you look at sort of for example like the reality of the South Vietnamese government is like much realer than the Afghan government. Like the level of like you know sort of just like everything about vietnam you can sort of find ways to look at the vietnam effort where you're like okay there are certain ways ultimately in the end this didn't make sense and it didn't work but you can kind of see here are things that made sense that like this was maybe like close to and you can't even find that for afghanistan and so you have just like all of these things whether it's like invading afghanistan and trying to like you know for 20 years we were there for tw- right? you know, spending 20 years in this comical ridiculous ineffective attempt to turn it into vermont or something um and maybe um, we would have been happy with florida right? maybe would we could have been happy maybe we could have been happy with oklahoma maybe we could have been happy with guam but no you know we needed we needed the vermont concept of you know the bennington concept of human rights to you know and 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 like and so you know we had all these bennington grads going and teaching like you know various you know transgender rights and whatever to, to, uh, like, right? workshops poetry <laughs> workshops right you know exactly and and um nothing wrong with a good poetry workshop but you know like yeah, everything has its place and and the i mean they love they love i mean in the taliban actually writing poems is like a qualification for leadership right but is it poems is that all, it, is, it is it is oh, it is really? a very, you're, you're there's serious. a very good volume there's a yes there's a volume of like translated taliban poetry that's actually not no too way. bad if you're into it's all of course from a taliban perspective right you know it's not really <laughs> not really gonna appeal to the uh, it's like there's this there's this other great book that i'm a huge fan of um called zen at war which was written by like a california hippie zen dude like in the 80s or 90s or something where he realizes that all of these zen masters many of whom came over to like california to because they smelled a good thing and like after you know the 40s 50s 60s but in like the 30s and 40s these guys are in japan they're in imperial japan right so he's like what is zen like um in imperial japan and he basically finds all these like and he just quotes these things with it's just this outrage where they're just like you know the feeling of zen is the feeling of a chinese soldier's head dropping from his body as yeah the perfect swords like i mean right you know and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and like you know there's just you know nothing is more zen than the moment of killing right you know or, or and 
it just reminds you of the sort of protean nature of this religion which can be sort mm-hmm. of like california hippies and and you know imperial death squads uh you know equally well and and, and <laughs> i'm sure there's then in taliban the taliban yeah right and so yeah there's definitely i mean there's something poetic and beautiful about martyrdom operations or whatever you want to call it well or um, you have to have a poetic uh sense of uh reality in order to sure i mean it. and you know you listen you listen to isis videos they're all like you know nasheeds which are um you know a cappella singing that you know uh salafi islam is like okay you can have music but no instruments yeah. so you have these basically nasheeds which are like sort of the Taliban Al-Qaeda equivalent of like the narco corrido, if you know that Mexican genre, like the drug drug narco music from northern Mexico, okay. like that celebrates like, you know, the the achievements of great drug lords. Um, and they have that for basically martyrs and so forth. And I mean, it's it's beautiful. Anyway, there's this very good volume of, of translated Taliban poetry. But um yeah, you know, definitely like feminist poetry workshops are not really the thing that's going to turn uh, Kandahar into into Bennington. And and so you chance. basically, you know, they had their chance, right? You know, if it was going to work, if it was going to work, it probably would have worked by now. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and so when we basically um, kind of pull the camera back and we look at basically just like the level of just weird and ins- insane shit that DC does that nobody even thinks about like how weird and insane it is. You're at a, like, you know, people will be like, well, the U S government's sclerotic and, you know, slow and bumbling and bureaucratic, but so is IBM. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. IBM is like this, but like, orders of magnitude my friends like yeah. you know yeah. like and and so they're just like whole you know it's like another great dc example is you remember 9-11 probably um looks like you were a little younger than me at that time but yeah, um they bit, came up they really came up with this really um um you're uh, you're looking good um the um um uh, the the keeping that brown hair is very important. Not, not going <laughs> he, he got uh, great and, locks too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As soon as as soon as I start getting bald, yeah. it's all coming off. Um, oh but um, I will not be one of those people. But you know the um, just get a good hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Um, but just like the the sheer like. The will, like the the, the sheer, decision. like the yeah. I mean, the example I was thinking of is that. So we have this term national security that was basically is a World War Two term, and what was decided, you know, basically, I think there's this line from Roosevelt where he's basically like, any political events anywhere in the world are relevant to U.S. national security. This and is so the basically. Second. This isn't yeah, Teddy. The this second, is, yeah, this yeah. is this is Franklin, Franklin, right? And so, basically, it somehow came about that basically part of the American kind of political creed became that to keep America safe, we have to rule the world. But you're saying even Washington, even George Washington had already noticed that that is our tendency. There's something in the way we look at the world is that there's something, there's this sort of weird, yeah, there's this weird vicarious like hunger that basically becomes people really don't feel it as the will to dominate it, but it becomes the will to dominate. And then it's sort of that will to dominate 
enters all of these institutions and becomes sort of part of the unconscious creed of these institutions. And then the U.S. is actually attacked in 2001. And so then they have to come up with this term homeland security, which means national security, but not national security, because that word is already taken. Right. You know, and so they come up with this weird Nazi sounding term homeland. homeland. Right. You know, homeland. Right. At least it's genderless. Right. At least it's genderless. Right. You know, Heimat. Right. You know, and and it's just like it's it's and, and you're like you would say national security, except that word is already taken for meaning something which it doesn't mean. Right. And so you have all these incredible like distortions of like there are all these convoluted ways of thinking that are sort of spread to the population from you know these assumptions through, that are hidden deep in our these in our assumptions state. that are sort of came yeah. out of some weird historical structure that get embedded in everything you know it's sort of like the um you know the I think people have traced like the six foot social dis both the six foot social distancing thing and the paper straw thing. And people have been like, where did this come from? And they actually found like high school science projects <laughs> that were basically the source of this shit. Right. You know, and, and like, it doesn't matter anymore, but you still have all, you know, all these circles on the floor with their six feet social distancing thing, which is absolutely and utterly and profoundly unscientific as like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it took these these just in like the specific area of the WHO had this bias for bizarre historical scientific reasons against thinking of viruses as airborne, right? And so you basically mm-hmm. had this where the six feet comes from was this whole like droplet theory which was shown to be completely incorrect, like which never made any goddamn sense. And was shown to be completely incorrect very early in the pandemic. And it took WHO like a year and a half to be like, well, I guess maybe it might be airborne. Right. Meanwhile, in Japan, they're like, okay, you know, like better ventilation is like the solution here because it's obviously airborne. Right. And they had some sort of native bureaucracy there, which could kind of make up its own mind. But the mindsets, the point is that basically when you're looking at the way the system does government, it has embedded in it a lot of extremely bizarre assumptions. Okay, it's like, it's, like a, it's like English language where you have these weird words that are just floating around that mean yeah, nothing, right. like what they what they came from. Or, still yeah, or it. just like, like strange conjugations like yeah. oxen, you know, and you're just like, you can go in the past and you can say, oh, well, this came from the dynamics of World War II or like this came from like somebody's high school project about plastic straws, you know, and watch like how, I mean, I guess my sort of point going back to your original question about monarchy is that sort of people are always like, they sort of believe in the wisdom or not even the wisdom, but like the sanity of crowds. And they're like, one person could be completely, completely mental and start poisoning the burritos or doing the, you know, um, and then, but if you have like a community of the smartest, best people making the decision, 
like how could that go wrong like who why should like some king who hmm. however he was chosen maybe he was just born to be king like and he's making the decisions about virology shouldn't the virologist make the decisions about virology yeah. and like you know the idea that the virologist should make the decisions about virology seems extremely logical yeah. and sensible a confederacy basic- of experts is what we yeah. ideally want yeah and it eventually gets you to COVID-19 because it basically creates incentives in within that network of experts where yeah. they basically are in a position, position to say, well, we need funding to do our work. Um, the more important we are, the more funding we get. Therefore, it is important for us to find important emerging threats, which could be threatening. So let's basically go and collect all the bat viruses. Well, these bat viruses can't, you know, normally infect people because they're bat viruses. But what if they mutated to jump to humans? That would be very dangerous and scary. Um, Let's examine how they could mutate to jump to humans. Uh, well, how could we do that? We could mutate create them, some <laughs> mutate examples, them, create some examples, right? You know, and, and basically you're just like not, you know, um, realizing in the process of this process of this, that you're doing exactly what the like director of Chernobyl did when he's like, we got to figure out if this nuclear reactor is safe. Our theory is that if we turn off all the safety systems and run it at full power, we'll still be safe, right? You know, and 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 like that's basically what yeah. you're doing when you collect these goddamn bad viruses, right? And and like, so and so some scientists at, the- scientists aren't adapted to power. Power adapts scientists to itself. So so scientists are are, are focused on 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 making science or even even trying to say, uh, solve a problem with regards to health. But power itself exerts a shape onto how the science happens and what what decisions each end up coming out of and institutes. And it mutates the culture of science eventually. And so basically to become we think of scientists as these people driven by pure curiosity, puttering around in their labs like some, you know, 19th century, like, you know, vicar or something that or like, alchemist studies, yeah. studies beetles under a microscope, you know, and that person is driven entirely by their curiosity and wonder and love for and, and these are the things that cause people to get into science. But the thing is, is once you're in science, you discover that it's just actually like very, very cutthroat bureaucracy. And you have to basically be a good operator in that bureaucracy. And the people who turn out to be the best at that are often somewhat mediocre scientists and really world-class bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. And so you basically sort of everything kind of gets twisted in this direction of like, Creating I need to justify, to yeah, I need to justify my importance. And the thing is, most fields are not such that you can actually create the problems that you're there to solve, but like, like virology, say a, a, vari- a virus that goes around the world and kills yeah virology is kind of an exception to that and so basically these people were you know it's like the the classic dc example is the self-licking ice cream cone right but this was like a toxic self-licking ice cream cone it's like a self-licking ice cream cone is like a something whose solution only exists to like solve itself like you know 
like you don't even get to lick the ice cream it licks itself yeah. right you know but yeah. but in this case it was a toxic self-licking ice cream cone and you look at basically the bureaucratic incentives which caused that to happen or i think caused that to happen because why would there be such a cover-up when there was nothing to cover up right and the um, yeah if reputation didn't matter nobody would have to lie yeah right and 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 there's clearly yes there's clearly some bad dealing there and like obviously nobody involved in this research wants to admit that this is what happened right and 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 so in every instance it's it's power that's directing everything whether it's it's under the guise of saving the world from this problem or liberating this country over here there's always power eventually is always operating under the surface because that's eventually what happens is and the power and power, power power corrupts things and so basically when you had i mean the way we got to give sort of academic models of policy so much power in the 20th century is we started the 20th century in a world where power was largely actually held by corrupt politicians and that like gilded age country worked a lot the, like the way china works today in some ways it wasn't a dictatorship but it was so, a country so, in which everything was very very corrupt and was done yeah. very quickly in this yeah. ugly way the power was directed and, specifically toward not necessarily the common good but doing a work right it, it wasn't directed to, yeah, it was directed it towards was, something more solid perhaps it had Even, a kind of corruption i mean the kind of corruption that existed there or exists in china today was like if the street gets built it maybe costs 30 percent more than it should have cost yeah. but it does get built um and but like the level of um you know there was also like there was yeah and and so what happened early in the 20th century was sort of the beginnings of what we call the progressive movement at that time was that basically America's hereditary aristocracy looked at this stuff and basically saw that people who were dumber and less sophisticated than them were in charge. And like, this is where we get, you know, one of the things I love to cite is this bizarre sort of disconnect between, you know, we have, if you think about the two words, democracy and politics, you'll notice that democracy has very, very positive connotations and politics has very, very negative connotations, but they're actually synonyms. And like, how do you have politics without democracy or democracy without politics? And specifically, I've heard you say this, but what helped me understand it better was when you talk about populism is basically a synonym or between democracy and politics is populism. Populism is is kind of a synonym for like putting politicians in charge and putting politicians in, you know, who appeal to like what the public wants in charge is literally the meaning of representative democracy. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that basically the progressive movement did is it said, we're going to treat representative democracy sort of the way the modern UK treats its monarchy. We're going to still have these elections, but we're going to make sure that basically it's really traditional and important and constitutional and necessary for the president to not really be in charge of the executive branch. Because if the president is like, can tell DOJ who to prosecute, like, yeah, my God. Right. You know? And so it's like Mm -hmm. saying, 
Queen Elizabeth II could say off with her head, right? You know, Elizabeth I could be like off with his head, but like Elizabeth II, like in theory, she has the same job, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But in practice, it's very, very different. And so... So the aristocracy reexerted itself, which would be the oligarchy. uh, Yeah, right, right. And sort of created this kind of institutional oligarchy. You know, the word meritocracy has been used... Um, is that is that a cynical take? Meritocracy. That's a whole other discussion. It was originally in the in the original book by Michael Young. It was sort of meant as a cynical take. Okay. Um, you know, merit is a tough term. Prove yourself in this case. to this pers- yeah, or, particular um, organization. But like, prove your intelligence, or prove that you have a degree from the right school, yeah. or prove, or you that, can you know, jump through the like, DEI hoops and do your equity statement in the right way. Right. Yeah. It's, it's always, right. It's a right. Filter. Right. It's 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 sort of drifted. You know, drifted away from merit. Or from any um, um, ability to do something in the world that's productive, other than uh, yeah. be a bureaucrat, basically. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah. So, so like the um, yeah. So, so you have this in, and you have this situation in which, whenever you basically take something that hasn't been, you know, power corrupts, and when you take something that hasn't been corrupted by power such as america's beautiful universities a hundred years ago and you say well why not give these smart and reasonable people power surely they won't be corrupted by it in any way and like basically by giving sort of all these sciences of government real power over government you've basically wound up you know like you needed a valve in that so that the sewage didn't flow up into the drinking water and the sewage has definitely gotten into the drinking water. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so like even virology, it turns out can be corrupted by power because nobody got into virology because they wanted to cause a pandemic. Like, you know, this was not done by like evil scientists, like, you know, um, like, this was done by people who were doing what Kuhn called normal science. They were basically being like, oh, yeah. And like COVID has only increased the funding that's going in this direction. Now they're like, see, emerging viruses can cause huge problems. We really need to make sure we catch all the Pokemon. And so we're going to wow and go. we're going to go into the bat caves and get more bat viruses mm-hmm. and play with them more. And like... It's a sort of there's sort well, of a counter no... example to that is the TSA being erected in the wake of 9-11. Like, I don't know if that's increased uh, terrorism itself, but it, it uh, the government tapped into this way of, uh, you know, uh, just swallowed this huge uh, industry of checking people going through airports. Right. And that's just an institution. Right. It doesn't necessarily yeah, cause more like, terrorism, but it's now it's just a waste of time and resources. Yeah, no, no, no. And you're seeing some of that with the, the COVID control that will 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 keep up forever, basically. Yeah. Um the yeah, I mean that's that's like that's sort of the self-licking ice cream cone sort of in its harmless sense where okay. you have this thing and you know um take your shoes off. Take your, your shoes water. off because yeah. yeah, right, 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 right. And and like the um, you know, I don't think that taking your shoes off and dumping your water is responsible for the like the death of terrorism um, or the death so far never, never counted out. Right. But um, no, I think that, um, you know, going going around killing people has done a lot of that. Um, but, you know, so it's like you can I mean, 
there's always a sort of defense for like you can sort of be like yeah let's you know defend the theory that the u.s needs to be the world's policeman because otherwise you know somebody else would or like there are always like you know nothing's quite black and white but the essential point that i sort of want to make is that if you're talking about a complete reset of like the meaning and purpose of government you're talking about something where like you have a lot of answers to a lot of questions that basically date to are like really old and just happening by inertia or came into something weird like the high school science fair or like you know and the need for kind of reconsidering all of these questions in like a reasonable way is like the fundamental driving force for imagining a completely different regime and it's sort of hard to know there's sort of no obvious collective at all in the world that could make these kinds of decisions Mm. or choices collectively so i I, i'm bringing this up because i'm pretty sure you're going to shoot it down but with the advent of the internet uh substack let's say the the brief phenomenon of what was called the intellectual dark web just as a concept just as a concept Mm -hmm. there could be the case that the prestige makers or the king makers which uh resided in the new york times and in harvard could switch online to these independent content creators that build up reputations and then bestow prestige on uh various different uh policies or various different politicians, right? If we, because if you look at like the New York Times or the Washington Post or Harvard, they're spewing out all this bullshit, you know, all this, we call it wokeness, but there's just a lot of bullshit. It seems like they're, they're expending their reputation. They're not making sense anymore, more or less. So their, their prestige is going down. Will not the prestige somehow democratically through the marketplace of attention uh, somehow replace that prestige uh, mechanism that gives us the oligarchy that, that shelves up the old. It's a, it's a, know. it's a good question. I, I think the problem is that sort of power is always prestigious. And the thing is you sort of, you want, you really want this kind of level playing field on which sense outcompetes nonsense. And you basically look at this playing field and you're like, why does nonsense kind of regularly outcompete sense? And it's because the nonsense is powerful and the sense is not. And if you basically, if you even just take sort of isolationism via versus internationalism, um, isolation versus globalism, if you want to use two pejoratives there, um, what you see is that there's much, much more power in the active thing because the active thing basically is like, we must hire a lot of people to govern the world. We must think very hard about governing the world. Whereas isolationism is the reverse of that. Isolationism is like, hey, there's 50,000 of America's like smartest people in the State Department. Do we need them? Why? Right. And, and the sense of, and so. Is it really that big? It's 50,000 people? Something like that. It's a little smaller. I think it depends. I I don't, not that many FSOs, but there's a lot of, um, yeah, it's huge. Right. You know, and I mean, you're governing the world, man, you know, like, you know, um, the indirectly someone, but you're governing the world. So like the sense of like what it takes to like, 
there's sort of no situation under which the idea that is not a source of power is going to outcompete the idea that is a source of power naturally. Or it's like you're like, okay, yeah, Harvard, like, like you might as an intellectual, as a critic, start to develop a community of people who have a low opinion of Harvard. But how is that community of people going to develop the endowment, the cultural capital, the like regime capital, like, you know, to like, you're not really talking about a private institution when you're talking about Harvard and the New York Times, you're talking about if these things were officially parts of the government, they'd be instantly recognizable as the most important and powerful parts of the government, right? And and so but the, the question is, while while the government, the trust in the government and the trust in Harvard, the trust in uh, the Washington uh, or the, the New York Times, all these all these legacy institutions, they're they're spewing bullshit. They're spewing the stuff that doesn't make sense They're But the trust doesn't come from their like ability to make truth telling their okay. reputation, their reputation, their prestige ultimately does not come from that reputation. There's a lot of things that they have to do to maintain that prestige. And there's certainly a lot of sort of prestige generating things that happen there. And they certainly do select a lot of very smart people, even though, you know, uh, admissions are, are what they are. But the, like, the sort of... There's no way to offshore that to the internet. Yeah, there's there's no way there's no way. Yeah, there's no way for sort of this like 90s dream of like people without any status or power competing with that, because basically the like the ingredient, the active ingredient is basically inertial. The active ingredient union is that Harvard is Harvard and you're not. And like your ability to sort of crack into that business is like, I mean, you know, it's like there's a list of, um, you know, the top 14 law schools. I don't know why it's 14. It is 14. Why if is you it go to a law, fortune? If you go, I don't know. Uh, the length of the original. At least it's paper, a, at least it's the round number. The top 14 <laughs> law schools have been the same top 14 law schools for the last 50 years. They're selected by something called. U.S. News and World Report, which used to be a magazine of some kind, and they haven't changed in the last 50 years. And by the way, if you're going to law school and you're not getting a top 14 degree, useless, don't do it. And um, you'll find yourself doing like discovery work or like shit work, right? You know, only the top 14 law schools are real law schools, right? So, you know, basically, how do you break into that? Like, is just no way just think of it as basically part of the government and then you're just like when you ask the question of how does this change or how is this shut down you will not expect automatic automatic market mechanisms to do that for you because actually the market loves this inertia um it can bet on it yeah it's like you know it's it works, right? There's nothing that makes it not work. Um, Even if it's uh, creating bad laws or like... uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. It's like there's like a just world theory here that's basically telling you that like when Harvard starts 
teaching nonsense, people will stop wanting to go to Harvard and or people will stop listening to Harvard or they will be like, no, it doesn't really work that way. Um, it's like when Harvard ends, it's because basically somebody upstages it with another thing or the, it just collapses, loses all its or, or somebody police, infiltrates it uh, or the or or the police um simply lock the doors and oh, okay. um declare that um the campus has been seized, uh, the trademark has been seized, uh, the <laughs> endowment has here. been seized. Right? You know, <laughs> and 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 so and and so the the thing is that basically and that's the that's the yeah, right. And and so the thing is that that when you basically, you know, are sort of expecting these things to happen in an automatic way and you basically are like, well, this is an outrage, but like God is just and God will fix it in some way. And therefore I don't have to, um, or power doesn't have to No, like actually only power can revise power. If you look, for example, at like Germany in 1945, let's take Germany in 1945, the occupying regime American military government, uh, uh, AMG, I forget the acronym, has the same powers as Hitler, right? Not only can they, you know, they can destroy anything that Hitler created. They're not like, oh, well, the SS is losing its prestige. Who wants to join the SS and, you know, anymore now in 1946? Like, no, that's not how it worked. You know, when East Germany was shut down, it wasn't like the Stasi is losing its prestige, right? It was like, no, actually, there is a new power over this and the new power has the power to just force this to cease to exist and it will cease to exist. And so like, if you look at the denazification of Germany and the sort of level of, there are two things that stand out about that. One is the level of force required to denazify Germany and the level of violence required to denazify Germany. The level of violence after conquering Germany, which took quite a bit of violence, the level of violence needed to enforce that was almost zero. There was a huge fear, you know, of basically, you know, the occupying forces are coming into occupied Germany. They're like, this is the most propagandized nationalist population in history. Hitler has been filling their heads full of pure crazy for 13 years. Like, clearly what's going to happen is they're going to start like these like guerrilla movements. They're going to go all like werewolf. There's going to yeah. be IEDs. Like there's going to be none of that happened. Yeah. Almost none of it. Same thing in Japan. Incredibly fanatical population drilled with all this propaganda. You take absolute power over them and they're like quiet as lambs and their minds change. But that didn't happen in Afghanistan and something about. No, that didn't happen in Afghanistan. That didn't happen in Afghanistan because basically the um, when you look at the way in which like or like the specific directives Like JCS 1067 is the directive for occupying Germany. You read this and it's basically a document of imperialism. And it includes things like Americans are not allowed to fraternize with Germans. They're not allowed to make friends with Germans. We have to understand, get them to understand that this is a conquered country. You know, whereas in Afghanistan, it's like, we didn't conquer you would conquer. We didn't conquer Afghanistan. We liberated Afghanistan. We're here to advise you. Oh, okay. And so we're not in command. We're not telling you what to do. We're so just we, like, we kind of basically just, just passive aggressively want you to do what we say. 
And yeah, and we're going to give you more money if you do what we say, but we're not in command here. That's imperialism. Okay. My God, we would never do that. That's bad. That would cause instant, you know, revolutions, like okay. absolutely terrible. Right. And the thing is, so basically, you know, it's only that absolutist total conquering attitude that actually affects change. There's a there's a there's a um, an analogy that the Victorians used to use, which is grasping the nettle. A nettle is a plant you'll find it in the Pacific Northwest a lot and in England with stinging hairs on it. And supposedly, if you touch a nettle, I have done this and it's very painful. If you touch a nettle, it will hurt. But if you grasp it firmly, it will like compress the hairs so that they don't sting. And basically, the lesson of grasping the nettle, which is something also very relevant in parenting, um, you know, weak parents are the ones who yell at their kids. And the um, the 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 sense you're not a parent, are you? Um, the, no, but the, I work with kids for a few decades the, now. The but the I, I was sense, just thinking about like the like showing up to school. This is this is why yeah. you're uh, constitutionally opposed to showing up to school board meetings or making these little laws against wokeness here and there. You, yeah, you, you, yeah. You think just, that's what's just, just you're just touching the nettle. You're, you're, you're just not actually. You're just touching the nettle. You're not actually grasping the nettle. And so you'll basically see, you know, in any situation with kids, like the nice substitute teacher is in a room that is a war zone, whereas yeah. the extremely strict teacher never raises her voice, right? And and the the like the the sense of that, and that's just a basic principle of like governance and management which again of power which yeah. again is completely lost here and so basically um you know the occupiers in 45 came in with this extremely determined attitude which actually in germany was quite rough in japan it was not rough but in Ger in germany they were quite rough but and we were more lenient to japan than to germany yes because it was being forces. run by macarthur specifically um and macarthur was kind of an old asia hand who kind of you know had a sense of what to do whereas there were a lot of like ideological fanatics in the the government of the new germany uh, oh, you may have heard of the like morgenthau plan or stuff like that um but yeah it was like it was like it was there were things like intentional starvation policies and shit which nobody talks about um yeah um and oh, wow. um, okay. um no it well, was i could it i was, could see like psychologically because we're closer related to germans that we would really want to kind of beat it out of them the just ideology kind of, like, of the time you can go i always recommend this to people go on the internet there's a little movie from 1945 this is um, the seuss one the yeah the seuss one hitler lives hitler lives it's absolutely <laughs> worth seeing um and um um and and just don't like worry about the fact that you're typing the word hitler lives into a google search box it's a historical it. it's documentary okay. it's very anti-nazi <laughs> uh to say the least um and and your mind will be blown and the um but yeah you know so I think a better example in some ways is the deconstruction of East Germany, because again, it's like when in you 89, have a, 90, 91. 89, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. because when you have a real regime change in a country, everyone's life changes. Like there's no, like everyone's life changes. Every institution is different. Anything that remains is reconstructed. Most things do not remain. And there's hmm. no like, there was no sense that like the Stasi was going to be turned into like a, 
you know, something different in 1989 or the SS was going to be turned into something different in 1945. That's not the way it works. And so the thing is that if you basically are really talking about a change of regime, you're talking about basically taking all of these powerful institutions inside or outside the government and basically deconstructing them and your experience just across the board by fiat across the board by fiat and you know the the experience of being because you're basically saying you're declaring that these were unofficial parts of the government and then you're reorganizing that part of the government and and you know the experience of being in one of these institutions or part of this sort of ruling class like that should not be a like painful experience it is a little painful when basically you know you're a major in the stasi you've put your whole career into this like whatever you've served faithfully served the german democratic republic and like one day you're like i know there were problems it wasn't perfect like but you know like what what are you going to do and then one day one day one day it's all over right you know and the your ideology the day before it's all over is just like we are the guardians of the revolution. Yeah. You know, if like Western imperialists subjugate our country, we are professional revolutionaries. We will conspire in the cafes. We will plant our bombs. We will be just like Lenin and Stalin. Yeah. And then you realize you're not like Lenin and Stalin. The day after you're like, Oh, I was just a bureaucrat. Guess what happens to you as a bureaucrat? You get a pension. Okay. You get retired. You know, well, there's still. Are you saying that we have to pay off all the yeah, gender studies uh, professors, absolutely. all of them, absolutely. all the critical theorists? Absolutely, 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 okay. absolutely. Because the thing is that basically that is absolutely because that is the only way to respect what they were actually doing. What they were actually doing was not wrong because they were faithfully serving the old regime. They were okay. Maybe if they did something especially evil, like that could be looked at. But it's like the principle that this is why, like, Germany today still pays pensions, I believe, not only to Stasi officers, even to some Wehrmacht officers, right? Because basically, what you're saying is that if you say to these people, you're an alien force, you're not part of society, like, you're saying, we don't really own you. We don't really care about you. You're an outcast. You should go and plot your next revolution because that's the only way you'll have a future. Whereas if you're saying to them, yeah, you know what? It's like, yeah, you were a professor of Marxist Leninist literature at the Moscow university in 1987. Like what is your future? I don't know. Was it bad? Write a book, write a novel. Like, was it bad to study Marxist Leninist literature? Like, yeah, okay. You know, you read literature. It's fine. You're smart. You can teach school, you know, like, you know, the, the, there's like the sense of sort of responsible leadership is very much the sense of like, if you have never dehumanize, never dehumanize. If you have a regime that, feels that it represents only a part of the country that's like very bad and so the sense of basically any kind of monarchy any kind of new regime of any form in 
this country, like one of the things that is going to be kind of its best, biggest selling point is that it's ending the kind of cold civil war. And so the sense of basically, you know, what are you if you were like a critical theorist English professor? Like, okay, you were someone whose entire world. You're basically just a preacher. With, yeah, if you're someone whose entire world was consumed by the ideology of the old regime. Um, the old regime has turned to dust and fallen away. And like, you can't go on doing that. Like, there's no world in which people are going to pay you to do that. But that doesn't make you a bad person. Yeah. That doesn't make it just means that you had a bullshit job under the old regime. Guess what? Yeah. A lot of people had bullshit jobs under the old regime. Right. Because like a lot of bullshit was done. Right. And so the sense of basically it's over and like everyone should be fine with that. It's over and that's fine rather than it's over and like now begins the vengeance. Right. You know, it's just like. So why why do you think that when Biden first came in, he was like, I'm the we're the party of unity. We're going to unify the country. And at this point in time, they're no, he's now more or less actively like saying ultra MAGA. He's like doing this weird kind of rhetoric. It seems kind of impotent, but it's still kind of dangerous where he's othering yeah, I mean, half of the country. Why would he do that? Like if that's not to, the power to, to because he's, you know, leaning on uh, the half that supports him and his like, um so his he's unity, caught in the trap his of unity. Of... His unity is fundamentally hegemonic in in form. And it can't basically the sense of like, I own my base, but I own your base, too, is the kind of unity that's like, you know, that's a dominant like. And of course, dominating basically the flyover people and basically sort of, um, hmm. you know, keeping them as ass. Yeah, keep, keeping them, or... keeping these outcasts or deplorables, or keeping basically like them in this sort of frame of mind where they're like, you should be good enough to vote for me, you know, um, in in sort of this like keeping the kind of structure between the aristocracy, the sort of blue state aristocracy, and the red state bourgeoisie is is like, you know, you hmm. should aspire to be one of us, and if you don't, maybe your children will, and it's not like that does not represent like there's sort of no actually like, Oh, I care about red state people and I want them to be able to live their lives in like a red state way. Now, do you think that there's something in the system that's causing him to not be able to do that? Like if he wanted to be the, the unifying president and at this point it's fallen apart. I mean, whether regardless if it's him or not, who's making these decisions and writing these talking points, like if that was what they wanted to do, what's keeping them from unifying? Well, you'd have to actually like out trumping Trump, you know, you you'd because you lose your own base, essentially, it's like you have to give if you're going to like basically say, I mean, one of the things that you see sort of American leftism or many leftisms do is they sort of circulate their clients and so there's always this sort of client population, you know, where 100 years ago, it's the working class, it's the factory worker, right? And the thing is that at a certain point, 
the factory worker is no longer an asset. And what we really need is basically instead of a class war, we need a race and culture war or we're like, our asset is like black Americans. No way. We actually prefer Mexicans. Um, There are more of them now. And so like, we're going to let the Mexicans take the blacks jobs, right. (laughs) Or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and this sense of, and like, the working class like stuck with these people for a very long time. You have the union Midwest union people, right. Who basically have been sort of voting democratic or were voting democratic on autopilot for 50 or 60 years until they realized that they were actually no longer the like mascot. They were now the goat. Um, If you look at the populations that who voted for FDR, well, who voted for FDR was a thin, you know, cream of aristocrats like him. And then the solid South, though, you know, old democratic segregationist mm-hmm. regimes who were Democrats because Robert E. Lee was a Democrat and I've always voted Democrat and I'm Robert E. Lee was a good man, you know, and then the inner city Catholics, right. And the inner city Catholics and Slavs, who you're like, what? Because they don't exist anymore. Uh, okay. They all got. But what was their you know, attraction like, to Roosevelt? Um, again, traditional ethnic, okay. traditional ethnic power politics, right? And so those were ethnic machines, and those machines were basically had always been, um, you know, the Democrats were America's sort of conservative party in a way, but they were also the party of like the Catholics and the inner city, like old, you know, Tammany Hall. And like the old sort of these old style political machines and these old style political machines, basically like, you know, when the solid South puts FDR into power, they're setting into motion the forces that would destroy the solid South. They have no idea. They don't think of themselves when they vote for Democrats as voting for liberals. They think of themselves as voting for Robert E. Lee. Right. Okay. And so they were and the same thing on, with the Union Democrats. Yeah. They kept on the voting for Robert E. Lee up until like the 1960s when they're like, wait a second. <laughs> like, this is no yeah. longer the party of Robert E. Lee. Right. And so it's sort of easy when you have a client base that trusts you like that. Those are the people that are going to get abused because when you can take someone for okay. granted, you know, that's who you abuse. And, and so, you know, like the sense of, um, you know, there's clearly in sort of voting in the New Deal, which would eventually bring them the civil rights movement, there's a sense in which, you know, the Marxist term false consciousness is applicable to all of these segregationists who are voting for FDR. They sort of knew he wasn't really a segregationist, but, you know, like Robert E. Lee was a Democrat, right? And so um, when you look at the various like sort of solid blocks in um, India, they have this wonderful term, which is vote bank, which is like a group of like ethnic votes that a politician can count on. So, you know, when you look at basically like the like Democratic vote bank or whatever, um, you're basically seeing... Yeah, I mean, like certainly. Like, so with Biden, his, there's something about the uh, his base, his vote bank, that needs that uh, antagonism with this other vote bank. He's locked into this party politics. Yeah, he's he's cold locked civil into, war, as you call it. 
Yes, yes. I mean, Blue State America is deeply locked into this cold, cold civil war because there's really not much they can say anymore to get, you know, the <laughs> white working sense. class or whatever. Yeah, right. You know, and, and there's but there's still like there's a lot of aspirational support out there. There's a lot of people who sort of look up to the upper class. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people like there's a lot of that, you know, even that like, you know, I mean, this is where Biden came from in the 70s. He's going around Delaware, which is after all a southern state, basically telling everyone, you know, what a bad idea busing and desegregation are. I mean, he's lived that long. Right. You know, and so in the 90s, he's talking about super predators, you know, like, I mean, this is a very empty, hollow man, which is just sort of the voice of the power around him. Yeah, exactly. And, so he's a great and, he's a great uh, image of what we're actually dealing with. in a way. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. I like, I mean, I, let's let's elect him again in 2024 as he gets older and older. Um, I think it would be beautiful. And and the uh, he might actually drool, just start drooling in front of his teleprompter. The autumn and, of the patriarch. If he hasn't done that already, you know. And um, hmm. yeah, so, so, so like when you, you know, you sort of imagine, you know, monarchy, this like exotic system of government, which is, you know, the system of government that like 99% of all people in history have lived under. And then you're like, but it could be insane and do weird, insane things. And I'm like, actually, there's a lot of insanity there right now. You're just used to it. Well, especially if, if you, if, I, I think there might be three uh, kind of states. You said there's a wartime and then the peacetime kind of uh, uh, executive, but there could be like a cleanup executive and then kind of a prosperous executive and then a stabilizing executive. Like there's kind of these yeah, things. Yeah, the cleanup and, and, executive is definitely like the wartime executive. Yeah, okay. And just being able to explicitly call out power and, and to regulate power through one explicit means rather than having going through this oligarchical um, institutional right. process that gets all these weird ideas in it that it can't shake down. If you have like one free agent that all the, all, through which all power flows, yeah. then the potential to clean up and then to also make decisions or at least to make decisions cleanly that can then be a, uh, held account one way or another yeah. rather than it being lost in all these processes right. is much yeah. More yeah. It's much more, it's much more, I mean, and it's just like, you look at, I constantly say this, but like, if you look at anything that gets done in the real world today, it's done by a monarchy. Drive a car is made by a monarchy. You know, that microphone in front of you, it was made by a monarchy, which is a company in China, which is another monarchy. So like the set of like, if you look around you, you see a world made by monarchies within monarchies and, and like the, if there was an effective oligarchical or Republican way to run a company, mm. somebody would have that worked better than that. Somebody certainly would have found it. And because there's nothing stopping you from having a company that's run by a Congress and a judiciary and a president and all that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, but but that but in order for us to make that leap, there has to be a huge change of view by the American populace towards yeah, power and, and one thing and, is to and, expose it like you're doing but it's another to like try to get people on the same page because everybody that i tell your ideas to recoils exactly. I, I'm, I'm living in yeah, washington yeah. and portland of so, course you know, of uh, course of course of course of course a washington state yeah right yeah. and 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 so and and they recoil in a way 
they recoil for a couple of different reasons. They recoil at a sense of alienness, and they also feel um, subconsciously that a source of meaning in their lives would be taken away. And the sense of having power for them is not about having a government that treats them well. It's about mattering in a sense. And this idea that they would no longer matter in that way feels emasculating. It feels like basically people have a natural power drive and that sort of power drive is kind of being exploited in them to give this them this illusion of mattering, whereas it's actually sort of turns into support. It's like basically your desire to matter. Um, this guy, um, this great political scientist, Gaetano Mosca from uh, over 100 years ago, had this great term, which is a political formula. And a political formula is whatever you believe that causes you to support the government. So you might be in ancient Egypt and you might believe that Pharaoh should be on the throne because Pharaoh is the son of, you know, the mm-hmm. great grandson of God or something. And like, yeah, myth. You know, Pharaoh, and basically, if, if Pharaoh is not on the throne, then the sun will not come up in the morning. Right. And that's a political formula. And, you know, 20th century political formulas tend to resolve around. I feel powerful because I support the government or Ukraine or abortion rights or, you know, all of these things things giving you a sense of meaning and importance. And the thing is you're sort of trading what you don't realize is that you're trading that in order for this basically pornographic feeling of meaning and importance, which is pornographic because it's not real. You're not actually in the decision loop. When you look at Ukraine, you're not actually like moving Ukrainian, you know, armies around on the battlefield like a chessboard. You're just having this kind of pornographic feeling of feeling like you are defending Ukraine. Just like when you view pornography, you're like, I'm 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 doing it with this girl, but you're not. Yeah. You know, and and so what that basically that sort of change of that myth that change yeah that myth that formula and what rejecting that formula sort of allows you to do is basically to change exchange this to set aside this delusional sense of power and importance and replace it with something that actually matters you can become, if you basically can conquer your emotional desire for importance. Didn't you call you it like actually, political nofap at some point? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like political nofap. Or it's like, you know, the thing that I always, uh, you know, the example that I always use, I don't think this actually works in real life. But um, there's this um, legendary monkey banana trap where you basically have a banana and you and it's inside a little enclosure and the monkey puts its hand in the box and then cannot get its hand out of the box without letting go of the banana. And so, and then the hunter comes along and cracks it on the head and eats fried monkey for dinner. Right. And, and like, and you're like, there are a lot of bananas outside the box, but you have to be able to let go of the banana. And the sort of the problem of letting go of the banana, if you look at the capacity, here's why I'm optimistic about the ability for people to solve this problem, which they clearly haven't been able to do in the past. I'm optimistic about it because first of all, when you compare Americans today and the way they interact with politics 
to the way they interacted a hundred years ago. They're much more apathetic. They're sort of much less like they're much less ready, ready, for example, to engage in political violence. Um, they're much to show less, up to seven hour Zoom meetings, seven hour, you know, or seven hour like riots. Right. You know, like you can't, you know, like like the. Um, but the race riots you, in 2020. Just yeah. But the thing is, the last time you see like white people rioting is like the 40s, for example, um, or, you know, even okay. like January 6th is like this incredibly pathetic thing. Like it's not it's the pretty French revolution. Well, pretty, I don't know. It's, it's According to the Democrats, it's, like it's a national holiday now. Like they have ceremonies yeah, and stuff yeah, about wow. it. It's pretty powerful. It's pretty, it's pretty limp. Uh, you know, and and like, uh, yeah, I'll show you. Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you you want to see you want you want to see a riot you know um the um um it's 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 pretty limp and but so but, but we're, we're, that, we're expending that in a pornographic way on twitter by doing all this culture war stuff what you're saying yeah. is this culture war stuff is just por- pornographic uh just it's a pornographic experience release. and you know yeah. the thing that can compete with pornography is sex it's like basically whenever you sort of show people how to have actual sex um, you know, that is the one way to pull them away from their porn. And so the thing is, I'm like, no, what you're doing cannot result in any real political change. But actually, real things can happen. And here's how. Okay. And that's sort of exciting, even if it doesn't have that's exciting at a different level and in a different sense, because you're like, okay, they're not close to happening. It's not about to happen. And what all this sort of pornographic politics is offering me is the sense that like, this is about to happen. Well, like elect Trump and like amazing things will happen. And, you know, or like, well, elect you know, and, and I'm like, no, none of this, nothing will happen as a result of these elections. But the thing is, if you want to think in a way that would, lead if you can get other people to think in this way real things to happen there's something actually more exciting about that and it's exciting in a like subtle and ironic way the idea that the way to have real power is like give up your power has this ironic quality to it and the thing is that we're living we have the most ironic population history there's never been any period in history when like irony was as mass market. The memes are a flow in my friend, never anywhere close. And so basically how is irony sense, a political force? Like I've heard you is, bring this up, but what is irony it about it's it? a political it force because it basically allows you to like, say like, fuck it in a really interesting way. There's but not the, the apathetic, show, like, do 90s. you know that? No, not in, do, do, do you know the British show black mirror? Uh, yeah, yeah. If you, there's a uh, there's a Black Mirror episode, I always point people to, where um, the population elects a cartoon character as a joke or as a like comment or as a something, right? Yeah, you know, and it's like, or if you look at something like sort of Storm Area Fifty One that didn't come off, Area Fifty One wasn't stormed. Oh yeah, but yeah, it yeah. kind of gives you a sense of like that the sense of like there will be whenever this thing comes crashing down there will be like a ludic a playful sense to it much as there was like especially in like Czechoslovakia 
in 89 with like the, the velvet revolution, you know, um, you had this real sense of playfulness to it, like an important aspect of the venture uh, of the velvet revolution was this like, um, sort of uh, band plastic people of the universe. It was kind of velvet underground influence, okay. like, you know, and so you had your Vaslav Havel, who's this like ironic playwright becomes the, you know, mm-hmm. goes from being a dissident to the president of Czechoslovakia. Um, we and, saw a little bit of that in the trucker uh, convoy in yeah, Canada. Yeah. There was a communal a thing, of, but the weird thing about that thing. was that, that's it where was, Trudeau like showed the power of the state to yeah, strip people and, of their and, finances, which is really scary. And like people took it like, yeah, and people took it like way too like seriously in a way. And his 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 uh, move to no kill the, the banks the, no the truckers so. the, the truckers took themselves way too seriously okay. and sort of not seriously enough. Like they didn't like yeah. like like there was yeah I mean there were they were huh. kind of larping in the end. They weren't like it but wasn't. You, this it serious. sounds like you're you're advocating for larping, but there's like some sort of truth sincerity. This really yeah sharp you know, there's side there's like there's like you sort of do it as a LARP, but it becomes real. It's like basically the sense of being a sort of a joke that makes itself real, I think will be kind of part uh, of this thing. That sounds it kind of like, like apocalyptic or revelatory. Well, like, it's like, in, in a way, I mean, I mean, we talked about Ukraine, Ukraine elected a comedian as president, right? You know, and so there's yeah. this sense of like, it will feel sort of almost accidental. It won't have this sort of like patriots rise up to like, you know, feeling it won't, it will be like, we can't take this seriously anymore. Like a carnival. Right. Yeah. It will have a, it will have a very joyous Mm -hmm. feel and not a very, like a carnival. It will feel very joyous and it will not feel like, and it it's will just, feel sort of that image and irreversible coupled and, with the outcome of like somebody with absolute power completely just liquidating all the institutions and rebooting them yeah. which is like the most serious thing i mean it, yeah. it's comedic like like i read yeah, i've been reading exactly. your substack we get to the part where like well how are we going to change things and it's so out it's just so absurd just like we're just going to tear everything apart we're going to take complete authority it's like what he can't do that like it it breaks my brain every time right and 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 that the sense of basically like voting for that or voting to be like you know it's like you know one of the ways i sort of picture it is is i'm like imagine you're in like the little room with the astronaut at like the end of 2001. Right. And you're just in this yeah, like good. weird space and like, right, there's Dave. like bland food. All right, Dave. Right. You know, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. You know? And, and like, but there's one difference. There's a red button on the wall and under the red button, it says, if you press this button, everything will change. Well, serious, sober, like hardworking, respectable people are not going to, grown-ups are not going to press that button because they're like we could just be shot into out into space that would be a change but you know who presses the button is basically immature people childlike people like people who are have a sense of fun which is much bigger than their sense of seriousness and so you know the people of America today are not Minutemen. They are not like the, like Paul Revere is not in the building. Like they do not act out of like 
a deep yeah, there's sense a, of romantic Have you seen sincerity. every couple months, like, there's this really stupid group of, like, supposed white supremacists, but it's totally an FBI sting. It's like, they, they, there's just <laughs> footage of them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, they're the yeah, People's Army or something? Yeah, yeah, and everybody's yeah. laughing at them. Nobody believes that that actually right. is serious. Right, and, 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 and so the sense of, like, uh, you know, that sense of, like, really deep comedy and irony like that's so ironic that it's real mm. is like really crucial to that sort of spirit to like how did you get this idea any possible regime change how did you come to this conception uh, um i think that it's sort of part of kind of being brought up in the American upper class and kind of understanding it's like spirit <clears throat> in a way. And it's like when you, a good way to sort of track the spirit is in popular entertainment. It's like, imagine if you took a film like inception and you put it in a movie theater in 1962 like people would be like coming out of their theater, just like grabbing their heads, like stun monkeys. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, even in like 1992, that would be like a cult film, but like 20 years after that, it's like a blockbuster and people are like, Oh yeah, there's three levels of reality. And I fall backward mm -hmm. into the bathtub. I mean, the next one. Right. You know, and yeah, it's yeah. like their ability to sort of switch frames yeah. is like really, really great. And it's sort of much easier to just like, there's sort of their attachment when you're in this sort of ironic, sophisticated state of mind, you're like attachment to the present frame is just not that great. And so to like move you sort of along the ground is still like hard. It's hard to reason people into something, but like when you're just hmm. like, no, throw away everything about the way you see the world and like change to see it in this other way. There's a lot of people who are just like, okay, sure. Right. And, and that comes out of a kind of frivolousness that comes out of a like lack of virtue in a sense, hmm. but like politics is the art of the possible. And the thing is, if you're looking for basically a politics of virtue to like unite a fundamentally unserious and unvirtuous population. But they're still LARPing uh, like this bloodbath, this civil war on Twitter, right? Yeah, they're, right, they're right. And, and it's just like, and it's just like you can do like, and you know, the feeling of sort of popping people out of that is very refreshing. And like the whole sort of framework of the debate, the cold civil war, the like issues or whatever, very tiresome, very uninteresting, very unchewy. Your ability to get ahead, left-wing politics was sort of designed to get people ahead. Or it's like works sort of like like up up the classes is that what you mean like yeah or up you or up, up you know up the like rise and like have a career and a profession you know it's like okay. one of the ways that I describe like the early New Deal is that it really was like a startup Washington in a lot of ways and like your like life cycle of being in the New Deal had this like startup quality like you would graduate from say Harvard with a degree in this new science of economics in like 1935 and you know somebody who knows somebody who knows like Felix Frankfurt or Tommy Corcoran or something and so you're like make some inquiries and one day you get 
the call and the voice on the telephone is like, would you like to come to Washington and, you know, work for us? And you're like, what, what would I be doing? And the voice will be like, we'll figure it out, you know, and you get there and you get in an office and your boss is like, here's $3 million, go electrify Arkansas. Right. You know, and that same person, like 80 years later, like their existence is, they're basically a Tracy Flick, you know, the, the great film election, um, Alexander Payne film from like 25 years ago or so. Reese Witherspoon. Plays, oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. High school student government. Right. You know, so you're like Tracy Flick and your goal is to get ahead in everything and be like a goody goody. And you're on the high school newspaper and you go to Harvard and, you know, study political science and then you're like, I want to go to Washington. Okay, I'm going to like intern for like a house member doing like constituent service. And like, you know, after a while, they might let me talk to the lobbyist who writes the legislation. And you'd be like, see, here's a line of legislation. I took credit for that. It wouldn't say that if I hadn't been there. You didn't write it. You got it from the right lobbyist or activist or whatever. Right. You know, and so basically, this is a very saturated system. Yeah. In terms of its ability to offer the things to ambitious people that ambitious yeah. people want, they need well, a you lot get the of simulacra simulacra of power, but you don't actually do anything. You don't get three million dollars yeah. to electrify uh, Alabama. Yeah, and if you actually do something, it's because you worked really hard to get a bunch of status, and then after you got that status, you've got some real actual power, and. Um, you know, yeah, it's like a really, um, it's like, it's really grueling and it rewards like people who are not as imaginative and talented, like people yeah. who are really imaginative and talented won't do it. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. and because yeah. it fucking sucks, you know, okay. and, and so you have like sort of all of these things are kind of ripe for something different in a way. And like one way to think about, sort of the way that something different exists is to think about or to sort of define the different thing that you want to exist is to think about sort of how it should think about what we have at present. How does the new regime think about the old regime? What does basically the Soviet Union in 1987 look like from the perspective of Russia in 1997? How you look back on the old regime and it shouldn't be like, oh man, I miss the old regime. Wow, they could really get that shit done. Now our garbage doesn't get picked up. It should not be like that. It should yeah. be the opposite of that, right? And so, you know, if you're looking at like, I mean, sort of the old America from the perspective of an America where even just basic things like you can walk safely anywhere, any time of day or night, right? You know, think about how impossible it is would be to get that basic, simple feature of like the government monopoly on violence back, right? Yeah. You know, and and right. like speaking from the West Coast, I mean, we're, we're yeah. kind of like on yeah, experiencing yeah, collapse right here. Portland, did you say Portland? Yeah, uh, Portland you know? and Seattle, Olympia, yeah. Yeah, San Francisco. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I've, I've seen it all, right? You know, and, and, and you're saying you're saying to get back to my first question, the opportunity or the the. This regime is is selecting for madness on a number of different levels, and then yeah. also selecting for people who have uh, lack of talent or, or imagination because they would probably just want to be in a startup um, yeah, to yeah. begin with. Um, so this new uh, 
era or new field will select for itself the leader that has the qualities that would maximize that. Yeah, I mean, I think that really people underrate the extent to which sort of the structure determines the ideologies and the virtues. And so basically any sort of monarchy at all would basically see that sort of bringing this like sort of you know you know how hercules uh sends the river into the augean stables right you know uh he he has you know in the myth of hercules he has all these impossible tasks to do which he does in these impossible ways he's like i'm gonna clean out the dirtiest stables in the world so like let's redirect a river through it right you know and and sending like it's hard the sort of the course of like kind of healing and repair in that sense that would be the obvious course for any monarch seems to me like if you took like Jay random CEO and made him king they'd probably or CEO of Washington or you know uh, imperial president or whatever they probably mostly come up with the same kinds of things I think it's definitely sort of like what is my role? My role is to sort of write the book on how to do this, right? Which will, I hope, help it become more possible. You, it's, Curtis Yarvin, yeah, that's me, your role. Curtis Yarvin. Yeah, you know, my role is definitely not to be king of apostle of pa- uh, monarchy. I, I'm, I'm a terrible. Patriarchy. Sorry about that. I'm a terrible CEO. I've been a CEO. I'm awful at it. Uh, you really don't want me as your CEO. Um, but um, I'm I'm a more of a the priest type than the than the warrior oh. type. But. Um, but yeah, I mean, like having that blueprint certainly helps or should help a great deal to make it possible. But it's, to make it possible, but yeah, um, the political formulation, the, the, the pre the poli- pre formulation, yeah, the poli- you know the the like why would you yeah the sort of the you have to have something both that is a plan that can be followed and a plan that people can believe in. And, you know, and that that belief is going to strike people as extremely odd. But like America is the land of propagandizing odd beliefs. And, you know, (laughs) it's true. Imagine, you know, sure. I mean, imagine how like imagine what people would have thought of punk in 1963. And now the Brits are going to get mad because they're going to say they invented punk. Yeah, well, the Americans, maybe, maybe, but imagine what the Brits would have thought of punk in 1963. (laughs) All right, well, I should probably, uh, we've spent a while on on the last questions. Any, yeah, uh, well, no, I just want to plug your your uh, your sub stack, excellent work, gray mirror with an A, not an E, correct? Gray, the gray with an A, the American way, yeah, and stuff, dot substack.com, impossible to find you on any social media other than that. I am not on social media, smart man, so. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Thank you Chris. So much. Thank you so much. Terribly this great was, time. This is really fun. All right. All right. I awesome. will uh, see you soon online. All right. Ciao. Bye. Take care.